You're listening to We're All All Right, the show that explores all the reasons we have to be hopeful, even joyful, about humanity and about our world today, despite what we see in the headlines. I'm your host, Phyllis Wilson. As a kid, I spent weekends with my dad, and that meant bi-monthly and sometimes more drives across the border from Massachusetts, where my mom and I lived for most of my childhood, to New Hampshire, where my dad lived. And from the time I could read, the slogan on the welcome sign on the highway as we crossed into New Hampshire raised my little kid eyebrows. Welcome, bienvenue, yes, it's also written in French, to New Hampshire. Live free or die. Live free or die? I had questions. My very young mind looked for the contrasts, black and white thinkers we are at that age. So, I thought, New Hampshire is for free people. Does that mean that my dad is free and that my mom isn't? Is that why they're not together? New Hampshire, by the way, literally equaled my dad back then. So, People in Massachusetts must not live free. Does that mean there's a boss there telling the adults what to do? Do I get to live free when I'm an adult because my dad lives there? I guess I thought free worked like foreign passports. If you have a parent from that country, you might be eligible. I distinctly remember wondering at one point if my dad was once in jail and now he was free. And so New Hampshire must be where people freed from jail live. To be clear, my dad wasn't in jail. Later, I remember hearing Massachusetts referred to as Taxachusetts and thinking, ah, that's what this whole thing is about. It's about taxes. Try as I might, however, I really couldn't find any discernible difference between day-to-day life in New Hampshire versus day-to-day life in Massachusetts. Sure, New Hampshire, meaning my dad's house, because again, that was the entire state to me, had the big backyard and the lake that my dad lived on. And since I visited mostly on weekends, holidays, and in the summer, it always felt a bit like a perpetual vacation. Score one for living free in New Hampshire. But all of my friends and my mom my best friend, and so much more, and all my things lived in Massachusetts. So if we weren't free there, well, I thought the trade-offs are worth it. At some point, when my mind could handle more complexity, I began reading the slogan with a little more mm, dread, perhaps is the word, because I had started to wonder if this was a command, a directive, a law, or maybe even a threat. I started to have this vision of New Hampshire as the Wild West and wondered if everyone else in the state, now that I understood that my dad wasn't the only person in the state or didn't comprise it entirely, were shotgun-wielding, chaps-wearing, cowboys and vigilantes. And perfectionist that I was, of course, one of my first thoughts was to wonder if I was quote-unquote doing it right, living free, that is, when I visited New Hampshire. And if I wasn't, would I be punished? Would I die? Would I be killed? As I said when I started this story, I had questions. 
A thought has been stuck in my head ever since I conceived of this podcast, and last week's episode, particularly the thought experiment, has it taking up much more space than ever. The thought, that is. Does we're all all right mean live and let live? Or it's bolder cousin, live free or die? Freedom of personal choice and speech and truth is the great justifier in the wilds of social media today, which for all intents and purposes these days means the world, at least to most. Personal choice is also where I started this season in the first episode, talking about the effects of school alternatives on the education system. Then last episode's thought experiment had us considering what would happen if we allowed restorative justice to play fully out, repairing the harm to the victim by the perpetrator and the harm to the perpetrator by others that contributed to the harm that the perpetrator caused, etc., etc., and so on and so on and so on. If that, the idea that we could and would actually succeed in repairing harm if we let restorative justice play all the way out, if that seems outlandish, I thought to myself, it almost seems farcical in this age of personal freedom. And that thought has brought up even more questions. What does justice even mean in this freedom of truth reality we seem to have found ourselves in? If rules and laws are meant to support our responsibilities to one another, I mean, that is what laws are meant to do, right? Then do we as humans naturally create laws where there aren't any? And if so, does that mean we have an innate sense of justice? This episode's five-minute history will be a little bit different. Since I can't cram the histories of lawmaking and human moral development into five minutes, And let's face it, that would be five minutes too long listening to one of the driest lectures of your life. Instead, I'm just going to cite a few, a tiny fraction of the total number of examples of injustice, of wrongdoing, of cruelty that seem to answer with a resounding no the question of do we as humans have an innate sense of justice? First, Slavery. Slavery has existed since the first civilizations of Samaria and Mesopotamia 9,000 years ago. Slavery was coded into law in early civilizations and was only outlawed on a global scale in 1948 by the United Nations. This doesn't mean the practice hasn't continued, yet It's striking, isn't it, to realize just how long we've existed with slavery encoded into our societies via laws. Second, the Holocaust, and other genocides, of course, before and since. In fact, there are at least five genocides in progress today, in Sudan, South Sudan, and the Central African Republic, as well as Iraq. Syria, and Myanmar. It's important to note here that 
genocide is a term coined in 1944 after the Holocaust to describe it as a particular kind of crime against humanity. The practice, however, of violence against particular groups of people, ethnic, national, religious, or otherwise, with the specific intent of eradicating those groups, has been ongoing since well before the 20th century. The last example I'll mention of our human wrongdoing and cruelty to one another may seem minor at first compared to slavery and genocide, but stick with me here. This last example is the clear, what I'm going to call, dissolution of civility, displayed in stark relief on social media, though not only there. We also see it playing out among our political, governmental, and private industry leaders, celebs across the entertainment spectrum, and on our local main streets among customers, business owners, shop workers, and service providers. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of identity, all esteemed values in civilized society seem to have turned into weapons that can be drawn at a moment's notice and wielded against one another. I want to be clear about what I mean when I say civility. Yes, I do mean politeness, a certain level of respect for another's dignity, but I also mean civility in the original, now somewhat archaic sense of the word, and that is of or an expression of a civilization. And what I mean by that word, civilization, is not simply a populous area and its people, but again, drawing on the definition we don't often consider these days, and this happens to be an exact quote from dictionary.com, but it captures the sentiment exactly. An advanced state of human society in which a high level of culture, science, industry, and government has been reached. And that is the reason I include the dissolution of civility among the horrors of slavery and genocide, because the dissolution of civility in this context is a reflection of a dissolving civilization. Hey there, friend. Really quickly, while I have you here, did you know that when I'm not waxing philosophical about finding joy and connection in our chaotic world... I'm coaching other coaches, and trainers and consultants too, to move way beyond their self-imposed limitations so they can play a much, much bigger game in the world with much, much bigger players, all while reclaiming more time to enjoy this amazing life and pursue everything they're passionate about. It's true, that's what I do. I work with clients both privately in a one-on-one setting and in an intimate group program called the Mentors Mastermind. If this sounds like something you've been looking for, I would love to speak with you. Head on over to my website at phyllis.wilson.pw and click on Talk to Phyllis. Time for a little thought experiment, yeah? Earlier, I mentioned that the idea of carrying out restorative justice to its very end seems farcical in this age of personal freedom. Here's why. It's not at all far-fetched to think that someone who has done harm to another person would, in the spirit of 
freedom of personal truth, claim not to have done harm simply because they don't believe that they did or because they don't agree that what they did was harm. In fact, this isn't far-fetched at all because it happens every day, especially, again, in the wilds of social media. Yet the more and more this happens, the more and more it becomes our norm, our default way of being with one another. And norms of behavior will eventually, without fail, find their way into law. And it seems like eventually arrives really, really quickly these days, doesn't it? So consider this. Do laws become less relevant or even less useful in our freedom of truth, otherwise known as post-truth, era? Are laws helping us or harming us at this stage of the game? Put differently, can we, as many, many people believe we can, rely on the rule of law to create or create a new, truly civilized society? Or, considering that collective behaviors become norms and norms become laws, is civility our individual responsibility first, perhaps even primarily. Here's the good news. All those terrible things humanity's done to one another, to ourselves? Research shows, more and more so, in fact, that these atrocities do not prove that we humans are, at our core, indifferent at best and violent at worst, animals with a hair-trigger, kill-or-be-killed survival instinct. Because in fact, there is just as much evidence in our human history of exceedingly high levels of compassion, cooperation, and yes, justice. Which means how we see one another and what we expect from one another, and therefore how we treat and behave toward one another, has more to do with the stories we tell ourselves, the narratives we perceive to be true, to be fact, to be the way it is, the way we are, than it has to do with the facts of our human history on this planet. And that means when it comes to the restoration of civility, the birthing of new civilizations, the laws our governments enact, the continued existence, or not, (laughs) of any given social media platform, or even your local mom and pop shop, we have infinitely more power than we think we do. For this episode, I'm only going to give you one resource for doing the best you can, otherwise known as my recommended reading slash listening slash viewing list. This time it's a book or an audio book, which is how I happen to be consuming it. 
Humankind, A Hopeful History by Rutger Bregman. I'll give you a link in the show notes. In this book, Bregman shares entirely different perspectives, even entirely different narratives about well-known events, campaigns, experiments, and stories that are so often pointed to as evidence of humanity's soullessness, showing us instead that while, yes, we are capable of horror, we are equally capable of extraordinary beauty, compassion, and love. And while neither end of that spectrum is, in its entirety, our true nature, in fact, looking at our history as a whole, we far more often bend toward good. Do you remember reading Lord of the Flies? That book, while fiction, is often pointed to as a realistic illustration of humanity's true nature. Well, it turns out an event very similar to that, boys stranded on a deserted island for over a year, actually happened. And it went nothing like the fictional story. Quite the opposite, in fact. It was hearing about this real-life Lord of the Flies that I first encountered the author and historian Rutger Bregman, who interviewed two of the survivors and the man who rescued them. I'll leave you with this, an answer to one of the many, many questions I posed at the beginning of this episode. In the absence of governance, do humans naturally create laws? Turns out, the answer is yes and they're written with a sense, imperfect as it might be, of justice and well-being for all. Hey, even Ralph in Lord of the Flies started his three rules with collective happiness in mind. Rule number one, have fun. Well, maybe we're all all alright after all. I feel like I went down the rabbit hole in this episode Then again, deep is kind of my thing. But now I'd love to hear from you. Do you share my sentiments about the dissolution of civility in our current climate? Or do you have an entirely different perspective? Do you think it's possible, even probable, that the true nature of humankind is good? And if you've read or are reading Bregman's book, please share your thoughts. You can find me and all episodes of this podcast at phyllis.wilson.pw and on Instagram at allrightpodcast. And if you haven't already done so, hit follow in your favorite podcast player so you don't miss an episode of We're All All Right. <laughs> <laughs>